You're turning into one of those nasty critics. I am not. <laughs> Dodge this. I am the father. I'm here on a mission of mercy. There's only one god man, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Let's put a smile on that face. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Open the pod bay doors, huh? I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the real world. This is episode 122 of the Movie Bite Podcast, where we talk about movies, movie reviews, movie news, trailers, and more. This is... This episode is being converted to digital bits ready to stream to you on Tuesday, January the 13th, 2014. I'm TJ, your host, and joining me today is the Olympic track star, Joe Darnell. How are you, Joe? Hi, TJ. Good evening. Thank you for having me back. It sounds like you had a bad Skype connection there for a second. Uh-oh. That's not good. No, no, no. Popped. Oh, well, that that's, that's going to be cut out, Joe, so you shouldn't even mention it. Oh, I thought we were going to blame it on Skype. No. Well, now I have to leave it in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how you doing, Joe? You mess, you're messing up my uh, editing sensibilities here today. How you doing? <laughs> yeah, this is episode 120, or is it 121? 122, Joe. Oh, keep keep with the times. Keep with the times. Well, we're just going to edit all of this out in post. No, the no, whole it's... show. We'll just edit the whole show out in post. No, it's got to. It's got to stay in at this point. I mean, you know, people have people have to hear. They have to understand how this production process works. We we go to a lot of work to make this thing happen. Mm. Speaking of this production and others, uh, you had a couple of trailers. Why don't we get to those? Yes, let's talk about the new Avengers trailer. world need something more powerful than any of us everyone creates the thing they dread ultra in the flesh no matter who wins or loses trouble always comes around that was from the upcoming film, from the trailer for the upcoming film, uh, Avengers Age of Ultron, directed by Joss Whedon. Of course, it is a Marvel film. And uh, I don't know. What, what, uh, first of all, Joe, what did you think of this trailer before I get into what I thought about it? Well, the popular criticism is that this is a letdown compared to the teaser, and I don't see it that way. I think that it's showing us a different facet of the same thing. I think that they came out with all guns blazing with that teaser trailer. Oh yeah. I don't think anybody expected it to do as well as it did. And I dare say the production studio crew, they they knew that they had something good, but they didn't know it was that good this time around. It's, you know, you get only one shot at that, you know, every now and then once in a blue moon, you just have the trailer that takes everybody by storm. And it did that. Uh, I don't expect it to do that again and again. So There are no strings on this trailer, and it's okay. I liked it. Um, I agreed with what you said in your post on the Movie Byte site, that it it focuses on the action. Like, you couldn't tell that by just listening to it. But what you see are lots of impressive uh, little snippets of action. 
you know, they're stopping and they're starting and they're prepping for battle and war. Mm-hmm. It looks like it's going to be a very um, action-driven sort of film if you were to just look at this one alone. And I'm sure it will one, be. Yeah. First one characterizes it with characters. This one characterizes it with action, action, action. Right. There was a lot more character exploration and a lot of di- more diving into Ultron and his character and, and much more menace and much more – you know, there's a lot more slow-mo shots and quiet, you know, thinking shots in the first trailer. And this one is pretty much action, action, action. Oh, more action, action, action. Oh, and here's some more action, action. And by the way, action. And so TJ, I think that there was a little bit more action um, at the uh, middle part. Y- yeah, I forgot that part. Um, yeah, this trailer is all about the action. And I get it. Like, they have to release this trailer because it is an action film and the people want action. And so this this appeals to the people that the first trailer didn't get. The People like, like me and like you, Joe, I think we probably tend towards, although it sounded like you really liked this trailer, we tend towards the more trailers like the first teaser where, yes, of course, it's an action film and it has action. And that trailer did have action, but it had a lot more character and it had a lot more, I don't know, just a lot more... Ultron, you know, talking and thinking and, and, and a lot more drama, I think, in it. Then this this trailer didn't really have a lot of drama in it, which is fine. And and I think if they follow the the kind of the trailer formula, then we'll get another one that will show us uh, a little bit of the emotion of the film. That's usually with the third trailer. They usually, you know, as we get closer to the release of the film, they come out with a trailer that, that tends to have a little more emotion in it. And I'll, I'm looking forward to that one. I'm not disappointed by this trailer by any means. I think it, it was fine, and I uh, I enjoyed watching some of the new scenes. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of my thoughts. Uh, Chad Hopkins, uh, former former co-host and friend of the show, uh, as they say, was uh, was a little bit down on it on Twitter. And I, and I get where he's coming from, but, yeah. And one thing that we can definitely gather from both of these trailers is that this is a very dark sort of action film. It's a very oh, yeah. serious Marvel film. Think uh, I can't even think of a Marvel film that has come across as this sober-minded before. Captain America: The Winter Soldier. Maybe, and even then, at times, it still feels a little bit more optimistic than this. Yeah, and I would say too, Joe, that I think we got the darkness in the actual film and not in the trailers for Captain America: The Winter Soldier. This one's obviously. I think this is because of the aftermath of Captain America, the Winter Soldier. We're in a darker time for the Marvel Universe. That that film really put – obviously, Guardians of the Galaxy is its own thing. But the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it really put that – put us into a dark place. And this this is reflective of that, I think. Uh, Mm. And it will be interesting to see whether the film has the same tone or not. But they're certainly reflecting in the trailers that tone that that has been set in Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Hmm. And speaking of darkness and dark worlds and everything serious and gruesome and uh, <laughs> brutal and nasty, uh, we have a very uh, sober-minded, another sober-minded trailer called iZombie. It's interesting that you say that, but we'll, I, I wouldn't put it that way, but we'll dive into that in a minute. Here is a clip from the trailer. My name is Liv. I used to be passionate, inspired, alive. Now I'm mostly just hungry and a zombie, so there's that. So that was uh, just the first 13 seconds of the trailer for iZombie, an upcoming series by Rob Thomas. Um, Joe, I want to play a little something for you here, uh, if I can cue it up. Um, Here we go. I would love to hear whatever it is, sir. Monica? I'm going to need your help. A teenaged private eye. Trust me. I know how dumb that sounds, but it's not like I found a Dakota ring at the bottom of a cereal box and thought, that sounds like fun. I wish. So does that, does that sound familiar wow. to you? 
It sounded like the same thing. Didn't it? Didn't it? I this mean, is, it had a different punchiness, but it was mostly the perkiness of the actress that was carrying it. Yeah, and and so there's been a lot of comparison being – I've seen it around, and I made the comparison myself. This is Rob Thomas, and so is this basically the undead version of Veronica Mars? And I'm not going to complain about that because I love the no. Veronica Mars series. Yeah, but lots of great directors and creators, show creators and filmmakers, they, they've – ripped themselves off to great success. I'm thinking about Alfred Hitchcock. It just came to the top of my mind. Mm-hmm. That guy serialized his thrillers in a television show. And he also did them in his movies and he was always plagiarizing himself, but in a good way. And he kept refining himself and he really did it to great success and everybody loves him for his craft. And I, that's something I wish more filmmakers would do with grace is avoid the, uh, the status that comes with, oh, I must be original every time. I must right. do something new and different. Right. Or people will not get, show me respect. And it's, no, get over your ego and just make something that you're really good at. Stick to who you are. Well, we're, we're going to talk – or I'm going to talk about this later in the, in the, in the show. Uh, the, the trademark of certain people, for instance, the directors of films, we talk about their trademarks. We talk about – um, I'm, I'm going to talk about how I felt like there was a lack of distinctiveness in the film that we're going to be reviewing later on from the director. Like I didn't feel a, a distinctive director's touch there. Some of the better directors, we always say, oh, we know it's that director because of this distinctive feel that he has. David Fincher. You can know a David Fincher film anywhere because he has a distinctiveness as a director. You can know a Joss Whedon film or, or one that he's written or directed or whatever anywhere because there's a distinctive flavor that he adds. So, um, yeah, I am, I'm completely siding with you here, Joe, in what I'm saying. And I am really looking forward to the undead version of Veronica Mars. Um, I, I wanted Veronica Mars to go on. I wanted more seasons, and we only got three. So um, I'm I'm really looking forward to this. It has that flavor, right? It's a completely different setting. Obviously, this this girl's a zombie, uh, but she's solving crime. I mean, hello. I mean, it just it looks like an almost reimagining of Veronica Mars. Now, maybe something <laughs> completely different if you, you know, once we get there, but this makes it certainly feel a lot like that. I think it's meant to appeal to the Veronica Mars fans and that, that whole voiceover mm. thing. I think that's one thing that Rob Thomas does. That's kind of his trademark. I mean, at least with Veronica Mars. And again, I've only seen Veronica Mars. Um, I would like to see some of Rob Thomas other work, but that's what I've seen. And that's what I know. And it feels very trademark Rob Thomas. I'm not especially interested in the show just because I don't uh, have a lot of interest in zombies, but I completely understand the entertainment value that comes with them because lots of people watch these shows and watch these movies. I, but, you know, but, but Joe, the, the zombie thing is just a trapping. Uh, it's almost like the, um, if you can make the, also the comparison to Buffy, um, you know, I'm not particularly interested in vampires. I don't mind them. Um, but I'm not particularly like, Ooh, vampires. I got to go watch that or whatever, but I loved Buffy and I think the same thing's going on here. This is a this is a trapping. This is a setting for Rob Thomas to tell great stories. Right. The, the, it, it does feel like it's Rob Thomas's Buffy in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. Just by the by the look of the trailer, and I'm sure that they can milk it for all it's worth. I'm just not especially interested in the horror genre in general, or the kind of characters, the mythical characters that come with it in the first place. Mm. Um, I, I like, for instance. I, I just don't like vampires. I mean, like I, I'm intrigued by the original classic version of Dracula, but that's sure. about it. Yeah. And um, I think that I was really sick uh, one day last year when I uh, wasn't feeling very well and I turned on Netflix and I was looking for something to watch and I accidentally started watching True Blood. And uh, I just fell asleep during it, and I didn't care. Mm, okay. Um, this, yeah, the, the the gruesomeness, the the morbid aspect, the morbid curiosity with the undead and stuff like that. It, it's uh, 
it's just uh, too disturbing for me really to get past it. And, no, I get um, that. Yeah, but, but I mean, I feel it, like it, the it's show's... fascinating, and I'm sure that they can tell a good story. And if anyone can, it's Rob. Well, and I feel like this show again. I don't think it's going to be about the undead so much. It's it's it's. Uh, I, I think it's going to be played up a little more for the humor. Uh, which yeah. is what I would expect. And that, <laughs> I would say, well, that's going to make it quite refreshing, but I'm not sure that it actually will. You don't think that'll help? <laughs> well, I get it. And, and I totally get where you like, I've never Let's had. Let's liven it up a bit with a little bit of humor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I've never, never had the uh, propensity to want to check oh, man, out. Come on. Uh, Her name Blood. is Liv. I mean, come on. <laughs> I had not made that connection before. That's good. <laughs> uh, but, yes, but, you know, it seemed you, like she punctuated it in excess in the trailer but for a good reason i think it would slip back by a lot of people well like i said it's it's rob thomas it's gonna have that humor to it i mean veronica mars always had a biting sarcastic satire humor kind of thing going on so uh yeah speaking though of uh of great tv shows and voiceovers and tv shows um and and the character narrating their own story uh, we have a trailer here for the upcoming season season three of house of cards You want to know what takes real courage? Holding it all together when the stakes are this high. Alright, I'm gonna have to stop it. There's just no good place to stop that trailer because <laughs> it's just and, that that piece of music for the rest of the trailer. Yeah, well, and in classic David Fincher style, it just keeps building. That tension just keeps building and building and building and building until you're like, oh, just oh, something's gotta give. <laughs> um and, and that's basically where we're at with House of Cards, too, is that tension has continued to build and build, and we've seen, you know, Frank Underwood become a worse and worse man, uh, you know, as he achieves his ambitions. Um, so, uh, you know, I, uh, and talking about morbid, I think that this, this show is much more, uh, I don't know if morbid is the right word or not, but it's certainly much more questionable in terms of that sort of thing. Like, you know, you, are you rooting for the bad guy and the bad guy is the protagonist, but he's the antagonist. And, and, you know, I, I, I feel like as long as this show ends with Frank Underwood getting his just desserts, um, you know, and if you're if you're saying he needs to be taken down, I think we're in an okay place. But this really blurs that line. I think that they're trying to explore how far they can stretch it out and, uh, you know, build up the audience anticipation for his comeuppance. And they very well might blow it when they get to the end. Maybe that they they uh, they chicken out of giving him that kind of kabumpets. I don't think David Fincher will. And that's, that's a very good point. So it could be very well, just Netflix's uh, equivalent to breaking bad. Yeah. They have yeah. all this anticipation build up and they rope his wife into it and it gets more and more gruesome until it just, everything falls apart. Well, I think they're hinting at that. I didn't play the whole trailer, but let me, uh, here, here, here's the line right here. We're murderers, Francis. We're survivors. I mean, that just <laughs> it kinda... sounds so much like something that, uh, you know, Mr. White would have said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and she's obviously Claire, even though she's, uh, you know, just as hardened and, and, uh, hands dirty and bloody as Frank in many ways, she's obviously starting to lose her stomach for it in that scene that they put there, at least in the trailer from what we can tell, you know, she was, you know, she's admitting, Hey, we're murderers, Frank. You know, that was, it was very kind of a, uh, plaintive kind of a thing going on there. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's interesting how much they were actually revealing with that statement in the trailer. I, I think that if they are willing to pull that card out, then they must have, Oh, did you hear what I did there? They must have <laughs> darker, interesting twists and secrets left in store for the audience oh, during the show. I'm sure they do. And, you know, uh, we, we as we've seen Frank ascend to power, like we've seen him become more and more evil. We've seen it, how hard it is, though, to hold it all together. And he wasn't even the president yet. We're completely spoiling the end of season two of House of Cards if you haven't seen it yet. So, you know. One of the reasons, though, that you wanted to talk about this was that, well, I mean, going back to your post on Movie Bite, uh-huh. I know that you've been a fan of the series and it's quite true that this is clearly one of the greatest revolutions in television as we know it because it's blurred the lines between cinema uh, motion pictures television and the internet video and uh, netflix is really knocking this one out out of the park i would love to see this sort of uh, creativity applied to something historical not just uh, historical fiction where you set this in Washington in the present day and have a bunch of fictional characters, but I would actually like to see something like a biopic performed this way or some other historical piece and carry it out for multiple se- uh, seasons. I Because this is something that hasn't been explored in other genres, I, I, I'm really liking it uh, just as a new form factor. A new package to the video medium. Yeah, what's interesting about the cinematic aspect, I, I know this is completely antithetical to the idea of what Netflix is doing, but I, I firmly believe that you can take any any part of the show, any take any hour or two hours, uh, obviously because people expect two hours and they go to the cinema, you'd probably take two episodes and put them together. Um, you know, take out the, the music, the introductory music on the second episode, just kind of butt them together. I firmly believe that they would play so well in the cinema. They're so cinematic. It feels like you're watching a very long episodic kind of movie going in, you know, and uh, episodic's the wrong word. It feels like you're watching a long movie over the course of the episodes. That's what I meant to say. Mm, and, yeah. and this, I mean, think about how this is shot, how it's edited, the pacing, everything of it screams cinema. And in my opinion, everything that I love about cinema there's, there's not a lot of action, but a, there's a lot of drama and a lot of story and a lot of heart in the telling of the story. And the, every actor is obviously super invested in this. They care about the work they're producing, and that's really important. And David Fincher obviously cares about the series. So just in that aspect, this, this is what I love about cinema, but it's not in the cinemas. It's on my TV, and it's available, you know, for better or for worse, all 13 episodes per season are available, you know, when they push the button. Um, and I have my qualms about that particular aspect, but it's, it's definitely part of this digital revolution. Like let's, let's push the envelope. Let's see what we can produce on this kind of a budget in this kind of a time frame, and, and in this kind of a format and let's give the people what they want. So it's going to be interesting to see where this goes over the course of the next 10 or 15 years. Well, speaking of something that is not impressing us, um, in the other direction, (laughs) <laughs> there is this bit of news about the next Star Trek film, Star Trek 13, as we're calling it. Really, uh, Star Trek 3 since the No, reboot. you may not call it Star Trek 3. I do not allow anybody in my presence to call it Star Trek 3. Star Trek 3 was where they searched for Spock. Okay, I'm just trying to think about the timeline, though, because this is, the this is third, a different timeline. This is, this is the third Star Trek in the rebooted series, but this is not Star Trek 3. Star Trek 3 was made in 1983. 83. Thank you, purist. Okay, you've got it. I really can't stand it when people call it Star Trek 3. Well, okay, so we can call it rebooted Star Trek 3. Sure, that qualifier works. 
Okay. So the point is, is that <laughs> word had it that Roberto Orsi wanted to have Vul- the planet Vulcan return in his film, his film adaptation of Star Trek 13. Yeah. yeah. Here's what, what? Nat- Natalie from tour.com says, uh, when Roberto Orsi stepped down from directing Star Trek three, rumor had it that one of the major problems was his screenplay. According to Badass Digest, the script saw the Vulcans racing to find a time travel device so that they could go back in time and save their planet Vulcan from, in the reboot's new timeline, Nero blowing it up with red matter, effectively rebooting the reboot. It's for several reasons that I'm glad Orchi won't be helming the new Star Trek, but this is paramount. <laughs> See what they did there? They shouldn't... Uh, they shouldn't try and resurrect Vulcan. I could not agree more. Um, obviously, we don't know if this is true or not. We don't know if this is what Orchi really had in mind or not. But this, if it's true, I'm really glad he got booted because that is the stupidest idea I have ever heard. Be you know, be brave enough to stick by your decisions. They decided. They made the incredibly brave decision from a Star Trek fandom's con- you know point of view to blow up the beloved planet Vulcan. You know, Vulcans are a mainstay in the Star Trek universe. The planet Vulcan has always been there. It's been assumed as part of the canon. We've been to it a few times, and they made the decision to destroy it in the reboot when they changed the timeline. That was an incredibly brave decision, and it's one of the few things that I thought was good about the new Star Trek. And you're going to, you're gonna, you're gonna be an Indian giver. You're gonna, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna call. <laughs> Oopsies, we're gonna, we're gonna bring that back. We're, we're, we didn't mean that. We totally didn't mean that. That, that. that would be the chickenest, stupidest. Words are failing me, Joe. It's, it's bad. It's really okay. bad. Okay, but I'm gonna take the devil's advocate approach to this because oh. i'm not the star trek fan that you are i've got my boxing gloves on joe you're not going to win this round okay well i'm going to turn off the lights and you're just going to be swinging and blind <laughs> come on bring so it up bring the, it up so here's the thing um i understand why the beloved fans are cringing with so many things that are happening during the reboot and y'all don't want any more of the details to be changed Naturally, everything is going to be changed, and you cannot tell me that there were not disappointments in the original films, you know, pre-Star uh, Trek level. Of course there were. There were loads of disappointments. A lot of them had to do with plot points. A lot of them had to do with the absurdity of a situation and how the heroes overcome it. We've seen things this colossal in other Star Trek films before. And whether they worked or not, that didn't stop the studios then. This isn't new to the Star Trek franchise. This is in keeping with the kind of thing that they would do. I can see where they're just – okay, that the director, Roberto, he just wanted to make something that was in keeping to the scale of what they accomplished in the original Star Trek three. that they wanted to do something quite unexpected and seemingly impossible – we saw Star Wars may, convinced us that you could blow up a planet with the Death Star. We saw Star Trek convince us that you can oh, do all kinds of things. Okay, Joe, um, what would you think if in Return of the Jedi they went back in time and uh, brought back um, Leia's planet? Uh, why I don't they- think that they would have to do it with time travel again. I don't think that Star Trek wants to become the the ongoing but that's what they're back talking the about future star trek the, series. the vulcans were racing according to this rumor the vulcans were racing to find a time travel device so they could undo the destruction of planet vulcan how else do you fix that i know uh, my problem with this this suggestion isn't actually the idea of bringing back the planet vulcan my problem with it is that they would use time travel to do it 
because I don't want Star Trek to be sucked into. We use time travel to explain all the things, and when we can't do that, we just in- create a new dimension. Yeah, they've they've they, and they've used time travel plenty. And by the way, that that was one of the frustrating things about the reboot is is uh, the reboot is that um, they've used time travel in Star Trek before, and it never created an alternate reality before. And and now we've changed the rules of time travel. I'd rather them just leave time travel alone. But seriously, Joe, I mean, like, what if in Return of the Jedi they had decided that they were going to race to find a way to bring Alderaan back or or an Empire Strikes Back? Like, does that strike you as a good way to go? No, they've made the decision. They destroyed the planet. We've got to live with that. We've rebooted the universe. Let's not reboot the reboot. Let's not reset things. Let's move forward. Right. Well, see, and that's another problem, too. I wouldn't mind bringing back the planet Vulcan. But I would mind the other things that are undone, the other things that are reset in the process, because right. then you would be undoing everything that we saw. Wasn't it in the first of the, uh, JJ's films? Uh, what about the first of JJ's films? It was the, it was the first of JJ's films where the planet Vulcan was destroyed. Correct. Right? Yeah, the first reboot. Yeah. yeah. So you'd be undoing a good chunk of everything done in the last two films, and everybody knows that that that's something you don't do. No. No, not uh, going all. back to what they did with the original Star Trek, I was thinking that maybe they bring back the planet Vulcan in some mysterious scientific way in the future present rather than like uh, undoing history and doing time travel like stuff. Like somehow because, pull, pull it out of the black hole. Right, because that's what they did with bringing Spock back to life. They had the Planet Genesis project, they bring I, Spock back, and they didn't have to do it with time travel. Honestly, I think that the whole plot of the original Star Trek Three, the bringing Spock back, was a little weak. But oh, it's horrible! I'm uh, not suggesting I call you do it. Horrible! It. It's different from this in, in many um, ways. Well, from, uh, from the I'm not the not a you know. <laughs> <laughs> because I am not just uh, going to look at Star Trek with rose-colored glasses. I'm going to say it's pretty horrible. <laughs> no, it wasn't horrible, but it, it wasn't. <laughs> it was horrible. They were. I will say they were in a rock and a hard place. Like as far at that time, Star Trek was Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And what do you do without Spock? And they decided that the franchise had been rejuvenated and they needed to bring him back. I'm not saying they made all the right choices. Um, and, and there was there was some great Star Trek movies that followed. Star Trek Three is certainly not one of my favorites. It's right up there with, as far as I am concerned, as a Star Wars fan, it's up there with like the the holiday, the Christmas special, the holiday. Oh my goodness, no, Star Joe, Wars. we cannot be friends. Sorry, uh, <laughs> it's where's that the, bad. Where's the end call button? We're done here. No. There are a lot of those Star Trek films. I would just drop in the wastebasket. Okay, there are two Star Trek films that you're allowed to drop in the wastebasket, and that's the very first one that was ever made, and the fifth one. Those are the two you're allowed to drop in the wastebasket. Everything mm. else is pretty decent, ranging from good to great. Well, I'm glad I don't live by your rules, DJ. <laughs> Aren't you, though? Well, that's enough uh, Star Trek talk. Uh, why yeah, don't we speaking talk speaking of the rules, yeah. we have the Golden Globes, and people won awards and stuff. You want to talk about this? Yes. Uh, so let's just go through this. I feel this. like we should. Yeah, we, it's we, sort of a, a momentous occasion well, for filmmaking. I mean, it's, it's what we do, is we talk about films, and that's what these people do, is they, they pick the best films um, and, and TV shows. Um, They're just living in our, uh, you know, our afterglow. And there, you know, this is, you know, all inspired by the movie bite podcast. And so this is really our award ceremony. Right? Yes. Yes. Well, that, that kind of goes in the, that flies against the, uh, the, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the provision I was about to set forth for my, the way I view this, uh, which is that uh, sadly, uh, I am a part-time film critic or film reviewer or whatever you want to call me. Um, I haven't seen every one of these films, and I certainly haven't seen all the TV shows because I'm much more picky about the TV shows that I watch because those can really suck a lot of time. I don't think you have to look at it that way because if you're someone that, say, is in the technology community 
and you review apps for a living or you are an app developer, nobody expects you to uh, you know, review all the apps made in a year before you can conclusively draw you know, this is the best one. This is the best one in this category. And, uh, you know, I, I, I liked your judgments. Uh, I liked your list of the best of 2014. Okay. Don't slight yourself. Okay. Well, I'm just saying, I, I usually, um, there's, there's one particular person who usually gives me a little bit of flack because I haven't seen all the films he thinks I should have seen. So. Oh, yeah. you're talking about me? Nah, no, TJ, never. No, I actually wasn't, but, um, Okay. So, best performance by an actor in a supporting role in a motion picture. The winner was J.K. Simmons and Whiplash. The nominees, the other nominees were Robert Duvall and The Judge, Ethan Hawke and Boyhood, Edward Norton and Birdman, Mark Ruffalo and Foxcatcher. TJ, are you going to read this entire post? This is kind of crazy long. This no, is like the longest just thing you've written the, Just go through the winners and, you know, and the nominees and then see what we had to say. It won't take that long. Okay. So, did you see Whiplash? I didn't see Whiplash. Nope. Um, I, I should put it on my list. I'm it's on my unofficial list. I should put it on my official list that I want to see. Um, I did anything think that, that got nominated is something I'm probably going to try and see sometime. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, I did enjoy both Robert Duvall, um, and Edward Norton in their respective films. So, um, JK Simmons though, obviously he's a great actor. Um, so I, I think that's probably deserved. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to try to see it soon. Unfortunately, the problem with these award ceremonies is they're taking for granted that the audience hasn't seeing all the pictures either, but that all the judges have and everybody in sh- uh, filmmaking has. Mm-hmm. And I, I doubt that, you know, most of these actors don't even bother to watch their own movies. Maybe unless they happen to show up for the premieres. Okay. I will skip a few of these. Cause I haven't like some of the TV stuff I just haven't seen. I, I can't, you know, they're talking about, you know, so, so-and-so from Downton Abbey, uh, orange is the new black American horror story, mom, true detective. I haven't seen a single one of those shows, you know? Mm. So, uh, let me skip down here. Um, do, 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 do. And if you, if I, if I skip something you want to talk about, that's fine. Um, a lot of TV stuff going on. Obviously TV's big at golden globes. Um, best original score for a motion picture was Johan Johansson, uh, in the, uh, doing the score for the theory of everything. The nominees or runners up were Alexander Desplat in the imitation for scoring the imitation game, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross gone girl, Antonio Sanchez Birdman and Hans Zimmer interstellar. Um, I'm sure this is a great choice. I have not heard the score for the theory of everything. I have heard the score for the imitation game. And in my opinion, it was one of the best scores, possibly the best score that we heard of 2014. So that would, you know, if these people are being as, uh, using the same, uh, measure that I would, that then the theory of everything must've had an awesome score. So have you not heard it yet? I haven't. No, me neither, but I'm going to check it out tomorrow. We'll have to follow up on that. Yeah. One. I really don't like to listen to scores too much before the film. Um, why? And I make exceptions sometimes just because I feel like it, it changes the way you view, view the film. Like if the music's in your head, then you get a different picture of what's going on. Like, like it changes things. Well, if you're reading the track, the, sorry, the track names and one of them is the girl dies here, then that, that would ruin it well, for me. But otherwise, there's that, but then, but then you hear, you're hearing the music in the different context and then the context changes in your mind. I don't know. It can, it can be, yeah. uh, it can be weird. There's yeah. There's always a different experience when you're listening to, soundtracks in and out of the movie theater or well, while you're watching the movie anywhere. Uh, I do like it though. Um, I wouldn't mind. And if they say it's the best of, I, I don't plan to see the theory of everything anytime soon. So no, I'll either. be glad to check out the soundtrack alone. Best performance by an actress in a motion motion picture, comedy or musical uh, is the category for that motion picture. And this was uh, Amy Adams in big eyes, which I have not seen. I did want to see it, but I haven't seen it. 
Um, Amy Adams is always fantastic, no doubt about it. But uh, one of the one of the nominees was Helen Mirren in the Hundred Foot Journey, and man, was she good in the Hundred Foot Journey. So I'm assuming Amy Adams really blew it out of the park. Hmm. You saw the Hundred Foot Journey, right? Yeah. I couldn't remember when 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 in the year that happened. If you were back with me, I think you were. It was you and me. I did, and I reviewed it with you. Yeah, that's right. Uh, as I recall, you liked it. Yes, sir. All right. Best Not as much as you did, but it was great. Okay. Okay. Best animated feature film: How to Train Your Dragon Two, The Nominees: Big Hero Six, The Book Life, The Book of Life, The Box Trolls, and The Lego Movie. How do you feel about this, Joe? I think that this was a huge misstep. But I, who am I? <laughs> you didn't Maybe like How the, to Train Your judges, Dragon Two, and I know see, that's the thing is I didn't like it so much, and I'm going to watch it again soon with my kids, and perhaps that it will change my opinion. But the first viewing was not so hot. Mm. I felt much better about the Lego movie. And I'm really surprised that it wasn't the winner just because even if it wasn't like more original, it feels more original. And I, I don't know, maybe they had a problem against it because it's uh, based on a toy line. Maybe thought it would, they, they thought it was too But I mean, it was commercial. nominated. So they all, everybody liked it. It's just, at this point, it's a matter of degrees. And for, for me, how to train your dragon two was, just maybe kind of sort of hard to tell slightly maybe better than the Lego movie. So they're basically on even footing. Big Hero 6 was a standout for me. Like I would have nominated. I would have uh, chosen that one as the winner. Wow. Yeah. That's saying a lot. It was good. I don't think it was that good. Yeah. Yeah. I know you did. Again, star cred versus my personal preference cred. Um, I think that the Lego movie deserved it both ways, but that's just me. Yeah. Best performance by an actress in a supporting role in a motion picture. The winner was Patricia Arquette in Boyhood. Um, the nominees were Jessica Chastain, A Most Violent Year, Kira Knightley, The Imitation Game, Emma Stone, Birdman, and Meryl Streep, Into the Woods. Uh, I'm going to be seeing Into the Woods this weekend, or probably Monday, realistically. But uh, I've seen The Imitation Game and Birdman. Birdman, I have not seen A Most Violent Year or Boyhood. Um, and again, um, and, and, and here's the thing, Joe, like you don't make it into a nominee unless you were really good. So I know this goes without saying, but Emma Stone was fantastic and Birdman and Keira Knightley was so good. He, she was amazing in the imitation game. I mean, and I don't say that lightly. I, I really enjoyed her performance in the imitation game. So, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing Patricia Arquette in boyhood. Hmm. Okay. You say so. I wanted to talk about the best screenplay category do it, do it, because do i do care about screenplay yes absolutely i uh, don't have much to say about the winner uh birdman took it and it had several writers um other nominees uh whereas the grand budapest hotel gone girl boyhood and the imitation game something i noticed a lot about the imitation game was how well written all the dialogue mm-hmm. was yes and that was one reason i i really enjoyed that film as much as i did second to the imitation game might be the great dark humor and the resonance of all the well, just great dialogue again in Gone Girl. Absolutely. But also, it didn't feel like it was all hinging upon the quality of the dialogue. It also just sounded, seemed like it was such a cohesive screenplay that it, it made the director's and the actor's performances jobs easier. And I would give a lot of that credit to the screenplay. Yeah, I would have chosen either Gone Girl or I, I've happened to have seen uh, – you know, the winner for this this one, and I've seen Gone Girl and The Imitation Game, I would have chosen Gone Girl or The Imitation Game over Birdman. But I, I enjoyed Birdman, don't get me wrong, but I felt like both of those had better screenplays than Birdman. So this is a strange choice for me. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I don't see how Birdman was better than those two in any measure, in any way you could measure it. Mm. 
But okay. you know, that's that's the way it is. Um, let's see. Let's skip that one. I don't know anything. Yeah, da, 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 da. Best television. Uh, best. No, 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 no. Go, hey, go ahead. I'm looking. I'm looking. Um, so, too many awards. Ah, here we go. Here we go. This is now. This one I can. I've only seen one of these, but the, I've seen the winner, so I'm going to mention it. Best performance by an actor in a television series drama. Kevin Spacey, House of Cards. Yes, yes, yes. The man is incredible. Enough said. Yeah, pretty much. You have anything else to add to the enough set? No, if you if you <laughs> want to dispute that, you're just off your rocker. I, I agree. I completely agree. Uh, all right, best director, motion picture. Uh, Richard Richard Linklater, Boyhood, was the winner. The nominees: Wes Anderson, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, Ava DuVarney, Selma, David Fincher, Gone Girl, and Alejandro Gonzalez and Uritu uh, for Birdman. Uh, I think this clearly, clearly, clearly should have gone to David Fincher and Gone Girl. Hmm. But I don't Did know. Gun Girl get anything? It's a good question. I, I don't I don't remember. I don't see it in any of it. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't seen it. But I mean, look, Shockers. Uh, you know, we, we're dis- we're disputing hairs here because, like, 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 like I said, if you're a nominee, you've made it, <laughs> basically. Um, all right. And sometimes I notice that the Golden Globes. I don't know if this is true. I've heard rumor, but it seems like they do a balancing act with the Academy Awards. And perhaps they knew that the Gone Girl would be getting a lot more attention there. Uh, I don't know. Mm. Uh, it's just a possibility. Okay. And I wouldn't be surprised at all. Uh, Looking here, see what else I had to say. Best performance by an actor in a motion picture drama. Speech, TJ, speech. What about speech? No, you said you wanted to say something. Go ahead. Oh. <laughs> so this is the best performance by an actor in a motion picture drama. I went to Eddie Redmayne uh, in The Theory of Everything. Uh, nominees, Steve Carell, Foxcatcher, Benedict Cumberbatch, The Imitation Game, Jake Gyllenhaal, Nightcrawler, and David Oilio. David Oily. Oilio. I don't know, whatever. Selma. I want to know how this did not go to Cumberbatch in The Imitation Game. How did that happen? I don't know. Hmm. Conspiracy. Yes. And finally, and finally, the best motion picture drama the winner was Boyhood, nominees Foxcatcher, The Imitation Game, Selma, and The Theory of Everything. Again, and I said this last week, The Imitation Game probably would have been my top of the year if I had seen it before the end of the year. So it would have been on that in that uh, category. But uh, yeah, that's it. Do you have anything and else to say? that is the Golden Globes 2014. Well, yeah, not comprehensive, but the comprehensive list is in the show notes. I, I I know a lot of people like to watch it like they watch their special football events. Oh, Did man. Did you watch it? No, I kind of like would like to, but uh, it's just Sundays are just not really uh, suited well to that for me. We get home late and spend time with family. and, and Anything uh, that I would want to know, I found out on Twitter. Yeah, I, I would like to. Maybe next year. Maybe this, you know, in 2016, I'll take the time to watch it, but uh, I didn't this year. So okay. one, one thing was pretty apparent to me, though, Joe, looking over this list uh-huh. in general, um, I think that um, we had some pretty great TV shows and movies in the year 2014. Right. Well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean better than usual? I it, It's so hard to tell. Um, I don't remember from year to year. Like, I, I don't remember. I'd have to look at my article again for 2013, you know, and say, oh, how does 2014 compare? I, I don't know about that. I'm just saying that it was a good year. It seemed like there's always, and I've heard people around go, oh, 2014 was a terrible year for films. No, it wasn't. Look at some of the great Depends on what you're had. looking for. It yeah. depends on what your tastes are. Well, I mean, that, that could be true, but I think people in general are like, oh, film is going downhill. It's like, we had some great films in 2014. No question. It depends on what kind of films you're looking for, people. Yeah. Oh, get off your high horse. (laughs) 
All right. Uh, shall we move on to Unbroken? Yes, please. I've been looking forward to this one a lot. However dark the night, however dim our hopes. Inbound four o'clock low. The light will always follow darkness. That was a clip from the trailer for the film we're going to be reviewing today, Unbroken. It was released on Christmas Day, December the 25th of 2014, on a budget of $65 million. It opened to $30.6 million, and worldwide gross currently is at $116 million. The critic consensus on Rotten Tomatoes is that Unbroken is undoubtedly well-intentioned, but it hits a few too many of the expected prestige pick beats to register as strongly as it should. The director is newcomer director Angelina Jolie. Screenwriters Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen, uh, Cohen Brothers, anybody? Um, Richard LaGraveness, uh, also, and William Nicholson were involved in the screenplay. And then Laura Hillenbrand wrote the book upon which this film is based. The stars are Jack O'Connell as Louis Zamperini, Domhnall Gleeson as Russell Allen Phillips. Uh, he is best known to me as Bill Weasley in Harry Potter. Uh, Garrett Hedlund played John Fitzgerald. Uh, he was in Tron Legacy as Sam Flynn. Oh, this is a Japanese name. Let me see if I can get this, Joe. It is Takamesa Ishihara. Uh, he We're going to add that to the list of the names that shall not be named again. <laughs> he played uh, the commander of the, uh, or the, not the commander, he was the in charge of the prison camp. Uh, Nabi was his name, and they called him the bird. Uh, Finn Whitrock uh, played Mac, Francis McNamara, and Jay Courtney played Hugh Cuppernell. (laughs) He uh, is known uh, to me as having played in Divergent, A Good Day to Die Hard, and Jack Reacher. The composer was Alexander Desplat. Unfortunately, I didn't feel like this uh, this music lived up nearly as uh, highly as his score on uh, The Imitation Game. Uh, It was fine, but it just did not quite make it to that same height for me. Uh, it was definitely consistent with his tastes and style. Sure, it I, is. I felt like you're right, though. It was a little bit more like phoned in, a little bit like do this on uh, your weekends and nights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely felt that way. It, it was where it was such a letdown because I'm expecting a great score because it's Alexander Desplat. He just did such a great work on the Imitation Game, which I loved so much that score. And then it just felt like, oh, this is not the Alexander Desplat score I was quite expecting. It was fine. It was fine. Um, all right, Joe, why don't you tell us a little bit about this story? Unbroken is a World War II story of survival, resilience, and redemption. It tells the extraordinary historical account of Louis Zamperini, an Olympic runner-turned-war hero. Against nearly impossible odds, Zamperini managed to survive years of extreme deprivation and torture, first spending 47 days lost at sea after his plane crashed several hundred miles away from Oahu, Hawaii, and then becoming a POW in Japan, where he was targeted by a malevolent, violent commander named Masuhiro Watanabe, who the POWs called the bird. All right, Joe, what did you think? Well, it's based on a true story, and it begins by saying something like a uh, true story. And I was like, okay, yeah, you say so. I, I, I am hoping that you can live up to the, my high expectations for uh, historical accounts, and uh, I think it did it. Uh, there aren't many films that attempt to be this consistent with history 
and live to see the movie theaters. Yeah, I was okay with that at the same time because it was so just absolutely consistent perhaps with the historical account. The film didn't take as many liberties with it to, to, to stylistically portray the situation or characterize the characters in a unique um, character filled fashion. A little bit bland. So it lacked some of the entertainment value we have come to expect from uh, exciting wartime stories about heroes. Yeah, well, let's talk about what we liked first, though, because I, I share some of those those uh, dislikes or the concerns or or maybe just observations, if whatever you want to call them. Um, I, I loved especially some of the opening scenes. Now, I do need to make a confession. I meant to ask you this before the show. Um, you did I, not watch this movie. No, I did watch the movie. I was running a little late getting out of the house. Um, supper got delayed a little bit, and uh, I was cramming you know, the supper down, and I was running out the door. I walked into the theater literally six and a half minutes past when the start time was. And, and always, there's always at least 15 minutes of trailer. Let's say there's 10 minutes of trailers. I still should have been in there, you know, it's like they did, the movie had, had, I don't know how long it had been started. When I got there and sat down six Ooh, minutes yeah. after showtime, the movie had started. I've never, ever, ever, ever had that happen. I've walked in a few minutes, I don't like to do it, but I've walked in a few minutes late when they were still playing trailers and it's been fine. I don't understand what happened. Like they just started the movie without trailers, I think. Uh, what I'm trying to, so they were in the, in the plane, um, fighting. It felt like the, the film had literally just started. Um, but they were in the plane and he was starting, you know, we saw them fighting a little bit. Then he had a flashback to his home. I'm assuming I didn't miss much. You did not very, yeah, you did not miss very much. Um, there was more plane sequence before that. Um, the flashback that you saw was when he was a child getting into trouble and mischief. No, I saw that one. Okay, yeah, but that, that's what I'm asking because that was the first flashback. Okay, so I, I was gonna say, I feel I feel like maybe I missed sixty seconds. It sounds like it. Okay, because the very beginning of the film shows an interesting uh, horizon line over the ocean, and so, you know, you see some there's a uh, some nice looking clouds and very quiet, you know, quietly and, and steadily. There's this buildup of the sound that the planes coming from the horizon, and they get bigger and bigger and bigger until you see lots and lots of the U.S. Uh, Army, you know, Air Force. <laughs> Uh, you know planes and then it zooms in on the one and focuses on them for the rest of the scene yeah i've been doing this joe now this podcast for uh over two years um so i um let's see let's see how how long i've been doing it here mm, do, 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 do. so let's say that nope not that far back 130 <laughs> What are so, you looking for? I'm looking for when we started the movie by podcast. Um, uh, years ago. Here we go. It was on July the 20th, 2012, when we recorded the first episode. So uh, it has been basically two and a half years. Uh, and I, this is the first time that I have missed the beginning of a movie. I think that's a pretty good track record. I'm, I'm defending myself. I'm feeling a little guilty. I felt guilty when it happened. Oh, impressive, sir. Yeah. Well done. Anyway. So anyway, yeah. Um, so I didn't miss much. Uh I really liked the stuff going on in the beginning of the film. I, I liked how realistic um, it felt. It didn't feel, um, and I felt this in other parts of the film too, like they weren't souping it up. They weren't really, you know, it wasn't these big action scenes. It felt very 1940s, you know, bomber plane, uh, you, you know, and, and, and just kind of in that same vein when, you know, later in the film when there's punching and stuff going on, it didn't feel as if they were really souping up the punch. You know how most movies now, when you punch somebody, it's like, you know, and this felt very, I mean, obviously you have to add a little Foley sound in there or it feels weird, 
but it didn't feel like they were overdoing it. It didn't feel like a modern movie in that way, and I really appreciated that about the film. And by the same token, the plane, I mean, just the grittiness of it, and yet the realistic feel of it, like it didn't feel overdramaed, you know, but you've got these bullets just zooming through the, the you know, the center of the plane and the, the bullet holes being riddled through there. I mean, it, it was uh, it was impressive. I really I really thought that was good. It reminded me of some of Quentin, uh, not Quentin Tarantino. It reminded me of some of uh, Clint Eastwood's recent movies like Grand Torino and Million Dollar Baby. Just the feel of the drama unfolding, the mm-hmm. character characterization of story by led, led by the director. But if um, you wanted to get really, uh, you know, like analytical about it, this uh, was like um, Clint uh, Clint Eastwood Jr made this film not Clint mm. Eastwood. And so everything it was it was everything like Eastwood but light so that everything was easier to uh, to muscle and stomach and handle that's, and That's going to come into play in what I have to say later when we get to our dislikes, but I agree. I but I appreciated it. It doesn't have to be a punchier film like you say it wasn't souped up and it still works this way. Uh in this in a way it feels more true to life. Because they were not sensationalizing it. Sensationalizing, that's a good word, yeah. Yeah, they were not uh, inflating it emotionally, visually, or cinematically. Yeah. They were just presenting, hey, this is the grime, the, these are the bad circumstances, this is how it would have felt. And in a way, it was kind of like castaway in that way. For part of the film, when they are adrift in their, you know, their rafts, and you don't know what's going to happen to them, except that they're probably going to live because this is ultimately a, a feel-good film, right? Um, but it, it, there is a moment when you see them in the rafts, and it's really gruesome, and it, it, that level of like brutal agony that they start to experience, and when it's over, you think, "Oh wow, can it get worse than this?" And the movie just goes on and on to impress you with how tough it was. Uh, for Louis and his friends, and you understand just like uh, the ravages of this war, just how how difficult it was for these men. I, I, it, what impressed me was how well it communicated uh, their their war story. Yeah, from uh, almost start to finish, and I felt like these were real people. I did not feel like these were characters. That had only been created the day before the movie began. Right, right. Like that happens so often, even with uh, essential historical films about wartime characters. Mm-hmm. They're so they're so driven by personality and characterization. They feel like they're straight out of Tom Sawyer or something. <laughs> and it just it, it kind of irks me when that happens with story. Uh, going back to the imitation game. I kind of had that impression about some of the other geniuses that were working with Alan Turing to crack the codes. Those performances were great, but their characterization was a bit too Hollywoodized. Like, I have a hard time believing that the real men were really behaving this way. Um, this is a stage performance. This is inflated. And I liked it for what it was, but it also didn't feel very true to life. Because everybody felt like they became a caricature of the real geniuses that were probably working with Alan. Right. Whereas this felt like this is Louis and his friends. And I felt that way throughout the entire film. There was only one performance, one character that got out of that for me. And that was Fitzgerald, who was in the last half of the film. Mm-hmm. A great performance. But even so, he was the the one actor and performance, the character that came across as a bit more um, uh, make-believe to me. 
And I, I don't know how to explain why, except that it was in the subtleties of his performance. And I'm probably just uh, reading into his performance in comparison to all the others, which seemed so they reminded me of my grandfather. They reminded me of that generation. They just, uh, their, their style of living, how they communicated, how they behaved with each other that was captured in this film. And I was really impressed. Yeah. Yeah. The historical aspect of this film is very impressive. Uh, and, and I've, I've done a little bit of reading. I've, I've uh, listened and watched some interviews with, uh, Louis Zamperini, who I was not very familiar with before, you know, before the film. And, uh, so I've been doing some reading and some, some research a little bit. And, uh, the film in large part is, is uh, pretty historically accurate. I would say more historically accurate than the imitation game, for instance, it's impossible not to make the comparison since these are two world war movie, world war two movies we've watched back to back. Um, it's it's uh it's very historically accurate. A lot of the big story beats did happen. Obviously, there were some little details fabricated or unknown or made up uh, that they've they've put in for the sake of the film. But for instance, you know, you you might think, oh well, they caught a shark and ate it. I mean, come on, who? That's, <laughs> but they did that. Louis Zamperini said they did that. There were sharks, you know, swimming around, and they uh, they caught one and brought it in and cut it up and ate it. Um, you know, and uh, you know the the whole um. The 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 thing with the uh, what, what was that bird that they caught? Um, oh, I had the, I had the, I had looked up the bird earlier. Um, albatross when the, when the albatross was there, and they uh, they caught it and they they tried to eat it. That the trying to eat it thing didn't really happen the way that 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 did. Um, but they did use it as bait to catch fish. Um, so all those things, those sorts of things, were very historically accurate. They were in the ocean for forty seven days. Forty seven days on that raft. Can you believe that? That's amazing. It was impressive. That was something that was lost on me in the life of Pi, that it, you had the uh, profound impression that Pi was adrift on his raft for an incredibly long time. And eventually he washes up to shore and they rescue him and they take care of him and uh, they take care of him. And you get the impression that they, they say, oh, you've been on there for months, months and months. And it's like, wow, it, it gets to be so ridiculous and over the top that it loses some of its meaning. What's the difference between two months and 12 months? Um, the way it was characterized, some of it, some of the meaning I think that they wanted in that story was lost on me. And I don't even, I don't think that life of Pi was based on a true story anyway. <laughs> well, not really. No. I mean, yeah. to, to an extent, I understand that there was at least a little bit of relaying of story, but it was pretty fantastical. Yeah. That's my understanding. This film, but though, th it did. This film sells the believability, and knowing that it was based on a true story, it makes it that much more remarkable. I was so impressed by this notion because let's just like take a, a, a you know, uh, rein this in for you. Uh, think about this, people. We have three soldiers, and one of them freaked out the moment that they understood that they were left on rafts to die in the middle of the ocean. The other two, they don't have much of a better predicament. And so they, they, they sit on their rafts day in and day out with basically no food and basically no supplies. And sharks swimming around. And basically no water and massive sharks swimming around. And every couple of days, it would be a terrible storm and you would hold on for dear life in the raft. Every couple of days, it would be a rain and you'd have just enough water to taunt you, fresh water that you could gather up in the cans. Yeah. And you're doing this for 47 days. And around the 30th day, one of the three soldiers, he dies because it's just too taxing physically. Yeah. And I mean, like, that is horrific. And then it gets worse <laughs> when they get on the land. 
I, I was so moved by the quality of this, of this, uh, of like, um, the strain that these men went through and their endurance. It, it, it is wonderful to see. And this is something that is lost in a lot of other war films. And one reason why I liked this one more than other war films, I, I completely understand that this level of endurance is few and far between. Not everybody can handle this much, but in a lot of movies, they tend to show the people who do not have this kind of endurance. And it gets so depressing so fast as you watch these soldiers just uh, in a horrible state of war and everything going bad. Whereas with this one, at least you're, you're so impressed with how they carry themselves. You're really rooting for them. You really want to see them come through on the other side. You don't want to see them put out of their misery and die. You're, you're cheering for him. Mm-hmm. You care about Louis. Oh, yeah. you, you really are eager to see whether or not he will snap. And you know the movie is called Unbroken. Which is sort of like calling the movie "The Girl Dies," but it's or "The Girl Lives." You know, it, it, you shouldn't do that. Probably not. No, um, and that probably steals some of the thunder from the film. Although, wasn't the book title "Unbroken"? Like, isn't that the point? It was named after the book. I don't know for sure. And I, I don't know either. But it, it does. It does. I mean, like, you should probably change the name of the movie. That that's actually one of my bigger criticisms. Going back to the likes. Yeah, the book is named "Unbroken." Going back to the likes. I think that the performances were really well done considering that these were many fresh faces to me. They have had other roles in other films, but they, for the most part, were less recognizable than other characters, uh, yeah, other yeah, yeah. actors. I don't think I recognized I really a single actor, that. actually. I recognized um, the guy who played Fitzgerald as being uh, Sam Flynn in the Tron Legacy. Mm, oh, yeah. I, I guess, I, of course, I did notice that. That's right. Uh, that would be Garrett Hed- Hedlund. Um, I didn't. I didn't actually it. recognize Jay Courtney, though. In retrospect, I do. Now I saw his name. Like, oh, of course. Well, that was Jay Courtney. Yeah. But but the other guy, like Jack O'Connell. Jack O'Connell. I did not know. I got to work on my pronunciation here. I'm I'm uh, slurring my words together. That's not good for a podcast. Uh, Domhnall Gleeson. Oh, and that never happens, TJ. I did not actually recognize Domhnall Gleeson um, in in the moment. Um, I, I I you know recognize him in retrospect, and I think, oh, when I saw that he was Bill Weasley, I'm like, oh, well, of course, yeah, that makes sense. But but yeah, I didn't really recognize these people. And, and and I should point out this is the first time for oh boy that one that we weren't going to name again Taka Mesa Isahara Isahara I don't know how to say Japanese names but uh, the 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 bird the commander dude of the uh, barracks um he uh or of of the prison camp sorry excuse me um he, this was his first time acting um and there's a there's an interview it'll be in the show notes by the way of uh of him and there's I'm gonna put one in the show notes of Louis Zamperini as well um yeah uh, good stuff. What else did you like about this film? I'm, I'm kind of out of likes. Hmm. Well, it, it, it's worth noting that the, just the, the direction, the direction from Angelina Jolie, she's made a couple other films, one of them, a documentary, another film I haven't seen, but she's got two other films in the making and she's taking the director's chair for those as well. One of the reasons that perhaps this film feels less, um, uh, significant, as you put it, was that it's uh, under-delivered by the director. The, the the director seems to have no style that's distinct enough to sell the impression that this will stand. You know, uh, film history it'll it'll go down as you know a one of a kind because look at what the director did there. You know, it doesn't have that pizzazz. Yeah, but I still liked this movie so much more 
than, say, a film that would have been over the top if led by a director that was trying to put too much of his stamp on it. Mm. So I really appreciate the respect to the story that Angelina gave it. And that's not, it's not very common that you see this. Like for instance, um, one of Ron Howard's films, you always know a Ron Howard movie and he loves to tell historical stories, but more often than not, he's putting so much of his director stamp on it that he's like killing some of the, of the story itself with the weight of what he wants to impose upon it. You will fill the way Ron Howard wants you to feel about this story. And I get that every time that I see a Ron Howard film, mm. whereas unbroken leaves you to the audience's own response. How do you interpret these events? Are you hoping that he will spare him, himself when he has the chance, you know, or are you going to, you know, root for him when he is willing to go back to the concentration camp? I'm going to have to disagree with you a little bit. Um, I, in fact, quite a bit, actually, I think. Um, I feel like this film was a waste of potential. Um, the, the Zamperini story, the, the, you know, Louis Zamperini's story, his real-life story is so great and so fantastic and, and filled with, with heroism. I mean, and, and, you know, he survived this terrible ordeal. And, and our World War II vets are becoming few and far between. My, my wife's grandfather uh, was a medic in, in World War II. That may be the only, uh, I think, yeah, that is the only, as far on both sides of our family, as far as I know, that's the only person left that served in World War II. Like we're, they're getting on up there. They're you know, in their eighties and nineties. Um, and, and so there's a few of them left and we need to be telling their stories. So on that, on that ground, I feel like that's good that we're doing this, but this film feels like such a waste of potential. There's so much potential in the story and it feels very straightforward and, uh, like they're hitting all the story beats. It's like, like almost like, um, uh, movie by committee that we need to hit this beat and we need to hit this beat and we need to hit this beat. Um, and, and I feel like, uh, the way, the way it stands now, this film would have been better served being, being a documentary. Um, it, it just feels too generic. It feels like it was, um, rubber stamped into place. You know, um, it, there's no distinctiveness to it. Uh, there is no distinctive feel of the director here. Um, every, I, I like to feel, I don't like it to be Depending on the film, like this film, it would not have been good for being overly distinctive, but I wanted a little bit of sense of what the style of, of that Jolie was going for. This is probably because she's not an experienced director, and hopefully maybe we'll see better films from her in the future. But I feel like she just failed to bring anything to this film. Um, she she really just told the story pretty straightforward. I was hoping hmm. for something unique to emerge, and it, and it didn't. Um, so that's, unfortunately, I, I have to disagree with you a little there. And that, that would be one of my major dislikes of this film is it felt bland and generic. And, and how do you take a story like Louis Zamperini's and make it so bland and generic? I, I don't know how you do that. Interesting. See, I, I have a hard time appreciating that because I mean, it, it kind of reminds it reminded me of the real world. Like when you're out of the ocean, what does the ocean look like? What does it feel like? What would it be like laying there for days on end doing nothing? You, you, you're able to convey, capture some of the agony. You're not able to capture just the torment of being adrift for so long. Mm. You're not able to capture the emotional strain of being under the thumb of the Japanese soldiers. You're able to give the impression for just a moment for a glimpse and then another one and another one and another one. But if you weren't affected by the moment when Zamperini is uh, punched by 200-some-odd different uh, POWs back-to-back-to-back. Oh, no, back I, back back. I was certainly affected by that, yes. Yeah. Um, 
I, I don't understand why we needed this to have some sort of stylistic flair to make it more impacting because it didn't feel unbelievable. It was very believable and that is saying a lot for it. I'm happy with it stopping there. Like um, one thing, again, a little bit of contrast. It's really hard not to make this comparison. The imitation game, it has all that oomph you're looking for from the director's chair. It has it. Yeah, I agree. You feel it. And it's probably so good that when you stand up after the movie, you say to yourself, wow, that was an impressive execution on a good story. But then a couple of weeks later, you think to yourself, yeah, it probably wasn't really like that. And I didn't want that feeling from the imitation game. Mm. And I don't have that feeling, though, with Unbroken. I feel like uh, many weeks from now, Somebody asks me about this movie. I'm going to be able to say, yeah, you know what's really interesting about that movie is it's practically true. It's it's practically consistent with what really happened. It's a rare film in these days. And if they say, really, well, does that make for a good story? I'd be like, um, you, better, you better believe it does because Zamperini's um, wartime story is just that amazing. <laughs> I, I don't know. Some, sometimes I think that we allow the craft to get in the way of just allowing the good story to tell itself. And this is one time when I felt like it deserved to be a little bit more biopic in that way. Rather just let it speak for itself. Mm. You don't, you don't have to put your spin on it. It's okay. Now, if another filmmaker wanted to come along in 20 years and tell the same story with their spin on it, I think that that would be fine. I'm not saying no, no, you know, Angelina Jolie should not, make movies where she, you know, she finds her niche and she finds her voice and she's able to portray, you know, now I'm not saying she can't do that. I would love to see what Angelina will do with her future films. And I would love to see what another director would have done with this film. But I don't think that we need to always be impressed with originality and Ooh, nah, look at, look at what that director seemed to do there. The nuance. Mm. It's overrated. Sometimes it's overrated. And um, if this was a film that was completely based on make-believe, I think I would feel very differently about this. If this wasn't a true story, if it was just saying, hey, look at the hardships that these people went through during World War II, I'd be like, oh, that's terrible. Was it based on a true story? And when they say no, I would say, uh, well, it loses a lot of its its credibility. Mm. So, uh, But I'm okay. I'm okay with how it was performed and how it was told. So I'm I'm happy with it. I'm content. To each his own, I suppose. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, check this one out. Um, the nonlinear storytelling that I loved so much in uh, the Imitation Game, the um, when I, when I normally don't, I felt a little more like my old self here in this film. Which the nonlinear ways in which the story was told didn't really work for me. It didn't. The transitions weren't smooth. Uh, I got a little lost uh, in the transitions, and 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 they just didn't make like they didn't feel like they were adding anything. They just felt like they were there for the sake of being there. Um, and they didn't feel additive in telling the story. How did you feel about those? Mm, see, I, I didn't have a problem with that. I, I was okay with how the that that particular like detail. Hmm. We're just we're just on opposite ends of the spectrum here, aren't we? Where I, oh, I, I, I preferred the imitation. You're, you're turning approach. you're turning into one of those nasty critics. I am not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm not. I, and again, I'm not trying to say this was the best movie of the year. No, I'm not going to that extent. But I'm just saying it's interesting. Where, where I preferred the imitation games approach, you prefer this film's approach. Uh huh. Well, but that said, I also gave the imitation game uh, four and a half stars mm, for different mm. reasons. For different reasons to like yeah. that film. 
one of the other things that bothered me about this film is I felt like a little bit of the um, the atrocities that happened uh, at the hands of the Japanese were a little glossed over. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of stuff in there that made you cringe, no doubt about it. But I felt like, in in large part, I, I've seen other World War II films do a better job of of describing what happened here. And I feel like when we got there, they made a, a wee bit of a caricature out of the bird, and uh, and they kind of played that up and didn't dive in as much into what was actually going on in those prisoner of war camps. I mean, this ties into a, a later point that I have in my notes here that I'll go ahead and make because it's, it's actually related now that I think about it. This film didn't really want to offend anybody too much. It didn't, um, it didn't want to take a stand on, so it didn't want to say this is what happened and you're just going to have to deal with it. It kind of, it kind of pulled back. I mean, the most, the, the most harrowing and excruciating thing that happened in the film is in, is, is when they're in the water up for 47 days on the raft and that's fine. I'm glad they did that. But I felt like that some of the other aspects of the film started to get a little glossed over by the time we got there. And it really, wow. See, I didn't feel that way. You got Japanese, um, you know, bombers, you know, shooting at their raft, trying to wipe them out once. With no, stroke uh, that, that was, that was good. I'm talking about after the raft. I'm talking about when we get to land, I felt like we started to gloss over some stuff there. Well, you have to pick and choose what details you, you portray in any given war film. Well, but I would say that the Mm. the raft sequence only took up maybe a quarter of the film. Maybe. I mean, so you still had a lot of film to do other details and stuff with. It didn't need to get glossy after that. Hmm. Okay. Um, So It it could have been that also Angelina did not want to make this film inaccessible to younger audiences. Oh, certainly not. I mean, it's a PG-13 film, so certainly not. Um, I I don't think that's what we're – I don't think that's in question. I don't think that's affecting what I'm talking about. Okay. Okay. my final complaint um, is that the film doesn't seem to know how to convey to us uh, Zamperini's unbreakable spirit or what makes him so. Like, I feel like that's what they, what they were trying to do, what she was trying to do with the flashbacks is say, oh, this is what molded him and shaped him. But but it wasn't connecting. The dots weren't connected. I really didn't understand what drove Zamperini. I really don't feel like she knew how to convey to us just exactly what he was going through and why or how his spirit was unbreakable. It just it just sort of was. It, it was a fact. That's a very interesting point. And uh, was something, may I make a comment to that? Yeah, absolutely. That's what you're here for, Joe. All right. Um, something that I noticed was that too. I, I, I was actually really surprised they did not rein that in late in the film where he has the opportunity to hold up the, the large, uh, would you call it a log? Beam. Beam, yeah. And you don't really know what's going on in his head. You don't know why he got the, the, the uh, strength and the willpower to hold the beam up. Like the one suggestion that came early on in the film from one of the flashbacks with his brother saying, Hey brother, remember for just a moment of pain, a lifetime of glory. Yeah. And like that was supposed to be the message of the entire film. Yeah. That kind of fell flat. If you can endure just a little bit of pain, you'll get a lifetime of glory. And it doesn't seem like that really works because when his brother said that it was, Long before either of them knew how bad it would get, <laughs> they did not know about the future circumstances. Right. His brother was referring to the, the the Olympic races at the time, and his brother was saying, "Hey, you know, if you can endure the pain and the strain of running in these races, you will get a lifetime of glory with that Olympian medal." You know, yeah. <laughs> that that's what he was thinking about. But I think what we were supposed to interpret was. You know, long term, if he can come out on the other side of war, 
amazing glory for this wartime hero. Mm-hmm. And you're right, it was a bit weak, but it also reminded me of um, real life. Uh, th- there are people who want to connect the dots all throughout life. You want to know that there's some meaning to it. There's got to be a rhyme and a reason for what happened in your past and what's happening in your future and the present. You're gonna, you are gonna, want to connect the dots, is I guess what I'm trying to say. The film doesn't bother to connect the dots because in Zamperini's case, maybe there weren't any. Like from one of the interviews with Louis as an old man, he was pointing out that when he was holding the beam, he doesn't know how he found the strength. He doesn't know what overcame him and gave him the willpower to withstand it. All he was able to say was he felt like he found strength like inside him that he didn't understand. Like that's basically what he said in his interview. And that's basically what we saw portrayed in the film. It just didn't bother to tell us that later, you know, maybe down in, in, in the uh, bunkers, uh, maybe one of the soldiers like Fitzgerald could have asked uh, Louis, how did you do that? How, how did you get the strength to do that? And Louis could have said, I don't know, <laughs> but we didn't need to hear that. And that, really. that actually would have been a great character building moment if he had done that. They had done that, but, but they didn't. Hmm. Well, um, I will say this in, in conclusion, and this is actually one thing that I did like about the film, is that it didn't um, – I was surprised it didn't pull any uh, – it, it didn't shy away from the fact that uh, Louis Zamperini is a Christian, or he was before he died. Uh, he, he actually died recently just before the film came out, unfortunately. Um, uh, he and, and he had, as the film portrays, had promised to give his life to God if God would save him off the raft, and he made good on that promise. Um, and the film points that out. I was I was very impressed with that aspect of and, and and to me like this is the thing. Even though even though I'm complaining about the fact that it wasn't as good a story as I wanted it to be, it's still a good enough story. And this is the sort of thing where, where we don't need Christian films. We need good films. And 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 if and if there is a Christian aspect to it, sure, point it out. And that, and that was good um, because in a way this was a, a biopic film. And um, they're telling the real story. They're saying, hey, look, Louis, Louis gave his life to God, and this is the man that he is. And I, I really appreciated that about this film. Did it say how he gave his life to God? Because I didn't catch it. Oh, well, he um, – it, it actually didn't. I know that he was – he uh, became like a – I don't think he, preacher is the right word, but he was very outspoken, and uh, he's well-known for, for being an inspirational speaker, I think, is what uh, – Christian speaker, I think, is what the thing says. I don't know a lot about that. I'm just glad that the film pointed it out. And um, it didn't. Uh, I I figured in a in a you know modern liberal Hollywood sense that they would have just sort of shied away from that aspect of it, but they they didn't. And and in the film, you know, it's very apparent. You remember the scene where he says, you know, God, if you'll just save me, I'll I'll you know serve you for the rest of my life, mm. uh, which I thought was a, a very that was one of the more moving and compelling aspects of the film. In an article on Slate, I read that that, that actually happened on the raft. That was something that he actually said after X number of days. Correct, and yes. He, he said, God, if you'll save our lives, not just his own. Uh, more specifically, he, that's what he said in that account. Um, another thing was that Angelina Jolie befriended him uh, a few years before he passed away. Mm-hmm. They became fast friends, and it's one of the reasons why the film was directed by Angelina. Yes, and I, I find that very interesting that she was able to establish that connection with him before he passed on and before she made the film. Perhaps it's why she made the film. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe she cared about his story, knew she was going to make the film, and wanted to get to know the man before he died. Either way. Either way. And it's probably why the film bothered to bring up as much about his religiosity as it did, his faith and values, just simply because um, my impression is – that Zamperini was probably more outspoken in real life than the film was. 
And it would be hard to gloss over that completely if you knew the man. Whereas a lot of films, when they're dealing with historical people who were Christians or religious in one way or the other, when a filmmaker doesn't want to characterize that because he doesn't feel like that's what his movie is about, if he didn't have a relationship with the historical figure that he is portraying, then it's much easier to leave it out. For instance, um, a lot of the founding fathers or other men in uh, you know America's history, like Abraham Lincoln, uh, depending on you know which account you want to read, <laughs> or uh, let's just say other founding fathers. If you know much about their history, you know that they were very religious people. And film and television that have portrayed the men usually gloss over that fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that if uh, filmmakers met those men, it would be practically impossible to gloss over that fact. Yep. And that's p- perhaps why it came through in this film. Yep. Um, so we are in the unlikes territory. I haven't agreed with you on many of them, but that's just the way it, it, it fell Sometimes together. it happens. Sometimes it happens. I do have to agree that there was a moment uh, maybe two hours into this two-hour and 30-minute long film that I was ready to look at my watch and say, is it over yet? It felt a little bit long. Not a lot, and, just a little bit. Yeah. It wasn't the end of the world. It was just, yeah, I'm wondering, okay, the, one problem for this film is that it's trying to demonstrate how long the torments went on and on and on, and the men not knowing when it would ever end. And if it did end, it meant they probably were killed or executed. Right, right. And the film sells that point or and attempts to sell that point even more by dragging it out. Um, if it had been a tighter film, it would have done a disservice to how many days, months, and years the men were in their situation. Uh, I We already established we weren't crazy about the soundtrack. And even though we have fresh faces, perhaps they didn't rein in the best performances. One thing that seemed kind of weak, even though the film was well organized and it had great editing, I thought that the dialogue was incredibly weak and straightforward. Like this is stuff that is on a third grade level, almost the entire film. Uh, Nothing very sophisticated like you would expect from some of the men, some of the influential figures in this film. And for that reason, it makes it accessible again for a younger audience. I wonder if that was one of the motivations, perhaps uh, Louis Zamperini, when the film was in production, didn't want the film to be so gritty, uh, like say Saving Private Ryan or something like that, to the point that um, younger audiences could not stomach it. Um, perhaps that was one of the thrusts. Maybe that was that. Maybe that was one of his contributions and observations he made. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was one of the reasons why this film feels as mild in compar- as it is in comparison to other war films. It takes away something, though. It does take something away from the film that. It's strange. I usually cannot handle a war movie, but I handled this one incredibly well. And part of the reason, like I already established, was I liked how they demonstrated these men have incredible endurance. They went through the worst of the worst, and they they came out on the other side victorious. I don't know. I'm somewhere in the middle. I don't know what I don't like about this film, except that it wasn't thrilling. Say there isn't much difference between this film and the King's Speech, mm. but something about the King's Speech is more profoundly affecting. It is more deeply moving. 
even though what the king went through was arguably um, l- less important, uh, a smaller conflict. Oh, sure, yeah. Dealing, yeah, dealing with his speech impediment for crying out loud and overcoming his uh, basic fear of man. I mean, yeah, it was important because he was turning king, but not nearly as life-threatening as what we saw in this movie. So it's strange that something like the King's speech would be more impacting than this story. And that's, that's saying something didn't work about this film. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's my, that's my, the thrust of my criticism, Joe, is that it's just that I don't feel, I don't feel as bothered by it as you are. Mm, Well, I mean, you know, okay, I'm bothered by it. You're not, that's, that's life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, so in conclusion then let's, uh, let's talk about our star rating. Joe, I give this film three stars uh, out of five because I feel like it could have been, the material could have been handled better. Unfortunately, at the same time, I do think it's worth a watch. I think it's worth being aware of and seeing. Um, I think Louis Zamperini's story is worth telling, and uh, I do recommend that people watch it. I just can't rate it as highly as I would like, just given some of the flaws that I pointed out earlier. Mm. Okay, sir. And I, uh, are you ready for me to give my star rating? Absolutely. Okay. I give it four out of five stars because it was well told, well communicated, uh, true to the account. Uh, no, no, especially weak points. Um, just, it didn't earn five stars for the fact that it was not as impacting as perhaps it should have been. Mm. All right. IMDB users rate it 7.2 out of 10 and on Rotten Tomatoes, the critics are quite a bit harsher on it even than we are at 49%. Well, they're a little harsher on it than I am, I should say, is what I mean to say. The audience is a little higher, uh, more approving of it at 73%. So they're they're a little more in line with what you're thinking. So yeah, I mean, and like I said, it's it's a film worth seeing. I just wish it had been handled better. All right, well that's uh, that is our review this week of Unbroken. Next week uh, we've gone back and forth a little bit on this, but next week we're going to talk about Into the Woods. Uh, it is something that I've been wanting to see, and uh, so we're going to make that happen. And I think you're looking forward to this one, Joe, aren't you? Yes, I am. My sister keeps on talking about it, and I want to tell her that I've seen it. All right. Well, that's what we'll be talking about next week. In the meantime, Joe, where can people find out where you're at on the internet and stalk you, sir? <laughs> I'm at uh, uh, joedarnell.com, and on Twitter, I am underscore Joe Darnell. All right, and I am TJ Draper Pro on Twitter. Catch me there. Uh, and uh, if you want Seven to. Seven days a week. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I'm sure that I post every day. I've never really checked, but I'm sure that I do. You are so TJ, TJ. I am TJ. Isn't that something? Uh, you can find the writing that I do at moviebyte.com, M-O-V-I-E-B-Y-T-E.com. And if you want to get the show notes for this episode, they're at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 122. Uh, and that is where you'll find the uh, show notes. You can also share that link with people if you want them to hear this episode or want to link to it. So tune in next week for End of the Woods, and we will see you guys then. Talk to all. Thank you.